The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. During this uh, program, I'd like to look at the letter that uh, Francis just sent to the bishops of Buenos Aires as a pastoral direction on his apostolic exhortation, uh, Maurice Laetitia. Yes, Francis wrote to the Novus Ordo bishops of Buenos Aires to explain exactly what he means by his uh, directive in Latin called Amoris Laetitia, in English translated poorly as love in the family. Uh, this directive of Francis to clarify his meaning, especially in number eight of the Apostolic Exhortation, was issued this letter was issued September 5th of this year, 2016. It was published by the Argentinian blog The Wonder and the Spanish news service Info Católica. And uh, in English translation, it also has come to us through the LifeSite News website. And uh, Francis is writing this to the Novus Ordo bishops of the Buenos Aires pastoral region. This is what, how it's introduced. The basic criteria for the application of chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia. The essential question here, as you recall, has to do with whether those who are living in adultery can be admitted to receive the Eucharist as Holy Communion in the Novus Ordo Church. Okay? There was a great uh, controversy that went on. It has been going on and still going on, I guess, among the, the conservatives and all the rest, the leftists, liberals, modernists, etc., etc. And um, there are those who are insisting, no, we cannot cross this line, and there are others who are insisting, well, we've already been doing it for years anyway, so what's the difference? And uh, then you have Francis weighing in with his extraordinary synod on the family, followed by, a year later, his ordinary synod on the family. Uh, you have Cardinal Walter Casper involved, you have Schoenbrunn involved, you have all of these cardinals involved. And uh, Francis now says, this is what I meant. So this letter is of importance. Here's what he says. Esteemed priests, we received with joy the exhortation Amoris Laetitia, which calls us, above all, to make the love between spouses grow, and to motivate the youth to opt for marriage and family. Those are the great themes that never should be ignored, nor remain overshadowed by other issues. Francis has opened various doors in the pastoral ministry for families, and we are called to take advantage of this time of mercy to receive as a pilgrim church the riches that the apostolic exhortation offers us in its various chapters. At this time, we will address only chapter 8, given that it makes references to, quote, guidelines of the bishop. 
for discernment regarding the possible access to the sacraments of some of those who are, quote, divorced and in a new union, close quotes. We believe it is convenient, as bishops of the same pastoral region, to agree to certain minimal criteria. We offer them without prejudice to the authority that each bishop has in his own diocese to specify them, complete them, or restrict them. Now, this is being written here for the bishops of this pastoral region by the uh, the authority in that the Novus Ordo authority in that uh, in that among that group of bishops, and it is claiming to interpret Francis's words, but it also quotes them at the same time. Uh, Francis has already said on a number of occasions he wants to decentralize the authority of the church. He wants to decentralize the treatment of certain questions. This is one of the questions that he said he wanted to decentralize. So when they say here they're going to allow the various bishops to decide how to apply this, each in his own in his own diocese, this is simply carrying through this idea of decentralizing the authority of the church. How to decentralize it in such a way that you have contradictory and contrary practices within the church from one diocese to another, you have to ask the modernists how they do that. But remember, the modernists are ecumenists, and they want to bring together a, a quasi-infinite number of contradictory elements, all in one church, having a multiplicity of religions and a multiplicity of different faiths and religious practices all in the same Big Ten Church. So for a modernist, there's no problem with contradiction uh, in the same church because they have a different concept of God. They believe in a God who is a God of contradictions. Francis has called him the God of surprises. And so in their mega church or their pluralistic church or church of diversity, they have no problem. In fact, they find it to be a strength, not a weakness a plus, not a negative, to have contradictory elements all included. Even though the very nature of God would forbid that for Catholics. So let me continue reading here. Number one, in the first place, we recall that it is not convenient to speak of, quote, permission to receive the sacraments, but rather a process of discernment accompanied by a pastor. It is a personal and pastoral discernment. Now, those few words say a lot, and it's not good. So, he says, as bishops, we're not talking about granting permission. People don't have to ask permission to receive the Eucharist. But rather, they have to go through a process of discernment, and in that process of discernment, the pastor is accompanying them. He's not guiding them. He's just sort of their enabler, in a way. And they're making this discernment for themselves. Who? The couple who are living in adultery. They have to discern for themselves whether they should be free to, to come to the Eucharist or not. So... It's a personal decision, a pastoral decision, but they've already said the pastor is there to accompany them in the process of this discernment, which is ultimately going to be their choice.
then what's the point of having a quote-unquote pastor at all? What's, what is a pastor in that case? But again, it gets back to not only Francis's idea of what a bishop is, it gets back to Francis's idea of what a pope is. A pope is there to help people discern for themselves faith and morals. He made this very clear after his uh, ordinary synod on the family. That this is the role of the papacy. This is the role of the pope. You can read that. It was made public. What he said his role was and why he wants a synodal church which gives him the groundswell of truth from the people down below. The bishops are meant to distill that, present it to Francis as pope, and Francis is meant then to find the formula to express the faith that the people have given, the moral principles that the people themselves have given. This is the modernist idea of the papacy. This is why I question whether Francis, not whether Francis has lost the papacy. I don't think that has any, that's, that question is not even raised in my mind. The question is, could Francis even accept the papacy that he doesn't believe in? Because he does not believe in the Catholic concept of the papacy. He believes in the modernist concept of the papacy, where the pastor, even the supreme pastor, is there to accompany the people in their process of discernment. Now, as you know, even if the cardinals unanimously voted one to be the, the Pope. In former times, in traditional times, a man would not be the Pope until he formally accepted the papacy. He had to make an act of the will to accept the responsibility of that office. And in accepting the responsibilities, and the authority, he became the Pope. A conscious, deliberate, rational, intelligent, human decision. But can one accept a position of such responsibility when he doesn't even believe that it exists? He doesn't even believe it. When his concept of the, that office is so not only different, but contrary to the real understanding of what the papacy is. Can one blame Francis if he has no idea what the papacy really is for doing what he's doing now? But then, if he has no concept what the papacy is, how could he have made a human act of the, of the will to accept the office that he doesn't even know exists? That in fact, he rejects, he rejects that very concept, the Catholic concept of the papacy. When they use the word pastor and pastoral, you're talking about that authority. Necessarily, you have to. You're talking about that very authority that is at stake here. That is the modernist concept of authority. It denies it. And so the pastor is reduced to merely being a guide on the journey. But he's not the one who determines the destination. Secondly, on this journey, the pastor should accentuate the fundamental announcement, the kerygma, that stimulates or renews the personal encounter with the living Christ. Oh boy, <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? That can mean various things, you know. 
That's the trouble with modernism. It can mean anything and nothing at the same time. Uh, the kerygma, the work of power that stimulates or renews the personal encounter with the living Christ. That's a, a Greek word, and they, the modernists use that as a code word for the miracle. But they don't like the word to use the word miracle. So, so um, not in the real sense of the word. So the pastor should, he's advised to accentuate this message, okay, as by way of an announcement. The kerygma stimulates or renews, one or the other, the personal encounter with the living Christ. In other words, again, we're back to their, the individuals involved living in adultery and their personal response to this question. Number three, the pastoral accompaniment is an exercise in the via caritatis, the way of charity. It is an invitation, invitation to follow the way of Jesus. So the pastor is uh, trying to stimulate their personal encounter with the living Christ. Again, he's merely accentuating this. He's offering them an invitation to follow the way of Christ. That of mercy and integration, quote unquote. This route demands the pastoral charity of the priest who welcomes the penitent, listens to him attentively, and shows him the maternal face of the church, at the same time accepting his upright intention and his good purpose of arranging his whole life in accordance with the light of the gospel and the practice of charity. So there, now remember, this is, this is given to the bishops now. So the priest is supposed to tell her priest, look, when someone comes to you who's living in adultery, you just take for granted this person means well and really, really wants to follow Christ. In other words, accept his upright intention. You know, accept it as automatically. Don't look for it. Don't try to inspire it in him. Accept that he already has that, a good purpose. And then, and then what? And then what? Invite him from there? Fourth, this journey does not end necessarily in the sacraments, okay, but rather can be oriented to other ways of being better integrated into the life of the church. A greater presence in the community, participation in groups of prayer or reflection, commitment to various ecclesial services, etc. In other words, there's this gradation of how this might end, this process of discernment, and the sacraments are merely one possible outcome, together with all these other things. But I would just like to say that in the mind of a Catholic, in the heart of a Catholic, the sacraments are not the same as these other things. The sacraments are of a different order. In the sacraments, we have the grace of God given ex opere operato. Christ himself works through the sacraments to grant the grace to the soul. There's a difference between the sacraments and all the other things here. The fact that they lump them all together as possible outcomes of this process of discernment, again, is a downgrading the very concept of the sacrament. Number five, when the concrete circumstances of a couple make it feasible, especially when both are Christians with a journey of faith, it is possible to propose that they make the effort of living in confidence. Possible to propose this. 
Okay, so in other words, we can consider the possibility of thinking about the eventuality of maybe suggesting that they do this. This is nonsense. It is possible to propose this, that they make an effort to live in chastity, that they live together without engaging in the marital act, but only when the concrete circumstances make it feasible. That's what it says. Oh, my goodness. What, what a plethora of verbiage with an absence of any real meaning here. And the meaning, what is there, is not good. Amoris Letizia does not ignore the difficulties of this option and leaves open the possibility of receiving the sacrament of reconciliation when one fails in this intention. According to the teaching of St. John Paul II to Cardinal William Baum of, uh, looks like March 22nd, 1996. Okay, that's, that's the authority they're referring to there. Number six, in other more complex circumstances, when it is not possible to obtain a declaration of nullity, the aforementioned option may not, in fact, be feasible. In other words, when they can't obtain a, uh, an annulment of the previous marriage so they can then uh, move on with their lives, um, then it might not be feasible to ask them to live together in chastity. Actually, they shouldn't be living together at all, frankly. Uh, nonetheless, it is equally possible to undertake a journey of discernment. I love that. The journey of discernment. Journey of discernment. Words that are just airy words for airheads. They're just, they're words that, that take, it's like the intellectual vacuum cleaner. They just put it on your head and suck all the ideas, the clear concepts out of your head. So you're left with these airy words of meaningless, gaseous nebulousness. I mean, it, uh, the whole idea is to use words to obscure reality and to obscure thought, to obscure truth is what they're doing. And modernists are experts at doing this. They latch on to these words like journey, discernment, to obscure the truth, to hide the truth. If one arrives at the recognition that in a particular case, there are limitations that diminish responsibility and culpability, particularly when a person judges that he would fall into a subsequent fault by damaging the children of the new union, that's the adultery. Amores Letizia opens up the possibility of access to the sacraments of reconciliation and the Eucharist. In other words, while they're living in adultery, they can go to confession, confess that they're living in adultery, receive absolution, go back to living in adultery again, and have every intention of going back to continue living in adultery. And they can go to the Eucharist at the same time. These, in turn, dispose the person to continue maturing and growing with the aid of grace. So, doing what the Church has traditionally said would be committing a sacrilegious confession. This is what they're prescribing here. This is what they're saying that their priests should pastorally 
uh, encourage, what's the word he uses here, to uh, accompany them with this, uh, this, this idea uh, that maybe because they have some diminished responsibility because it's just so hard for whatever reason. It's just so hard not to live together with the, this person with whom I'm not married. It was not my wife, not my husband. And to have marital relations with them as though they were. It's just so hard. And uh, that, I, that I have diminished responsibility. And that I should be able to go to their sacrament of reconciliation and make a mockery of it. They, they themselves are making a mockery of it. The Novus Ordo itself mocks what was the sacrament of reconciliation, the true sacrament of penance, and then commit the added sacrilege of, if it is the Eucharist, if it really is the Eucharistic presence of Christ, to, give, to, to actually compound the sacrilege. This is the formal teaching of the Novus Ordo here. What does it tell you? Number seven, however, it is necessary to avoid understanding this possibility as an unrestricted access to the sacraments. Now we get warnings here, cautions, or as though any situation might justify it. You know, it's interesting they put that in because they, it makes you realize that they, they realize what they're saying could be interpreted that way. So now they're going to say, oh, but we don't mean that just any circumstances are okay here. They have to put that in there, don't they? Because what they've said virtually, effectively, in reality, does just that. They give you a little caveat here. What is proposed is a discernment that adequately distinguishes each case. I'm surprised they haven't used the word authentic yet, because they just love the word authentic. What is proposed is a discernment that adequately distinguishes each case. For example, quote, a new union that comes out of a recent divorce, close quotes. Or, quote, the situation of someone who has repeatedly failed in his family commitments, close quote. They're quoting Francis here now in his Amoris Laetitia. These are, those are his own words here. He sa they say here that these situations require special care. And then they say this applies as well when there is a sort of defense or flaunting of the particular situation, quote, as if it were part of the Christian ideal, end of quote. In these more difficult cases, the pastors must accompany with patience, seeking some way of integration. Seeking some way of integration, seeking some way around the problem, seeking some way of getting them in without really addressing the fundamental problem. They're committing adultery and they're flaunting it. What does this mean? Must accompany with patience, seeking some way of integration. It's whatever you want it to mean. It's whatever they want it to mean. Eight, it is always important to guide people to place themselves with their conscience before God, and for this purpose, the, quote, examination of conscience, end of quote, that is proposed by Amoris Laetitia, 300, is useful. 
especially where it refers to, quote, how they have behaved towards their children, end quote, or towards the abandoned spouse. So um, one is supposed to examine their conscience, that is, how they've treated the children they've abandoned, how they've treated the spouse they've abandoned. When there were unresolved injustices, the access to the sacraments is particularly scandalous. Well, this is a concession to some scintilla of morality here. But it's not a basis of the offense to God. It is merely, it is, it is what they've done to other people. That's the issue here, okay? That's the one thing, evidently, that they say concretely would prevent this integration that they're talking about. Uh, getting the, the pers pers persistent, persisting adulterers back to receive the right of reconciliation and Eucharistic communion. Um, if they've mistreated the people they've left behind. So in other words, the implication is, though, that if they make amends for that and they, you know, somehow satisfy that question of how they've treated the abandoned spouse and how they've treated the forsaken children, then that's not an obstacle any longer. In other words, if they have gotten over these unresolved injustices by resolving them, however, but that's not requiring them to return to their spouses and their, their children, or even give up living in adultery, have them resolve these issues some other, some other way, then this would help pave the way for them receiving the sacraments, even while they continue living in adultery. Again, nothing good here. Number nine, it might be convenient that an eventual access to the sacraments be brought about in a reserved way, above all, when conflictive situations are foreseen. But at the same time, one must not cease to accompany the community so that it might grow in a spirit of understanding and welcoming without creating confusion regarding the teaching of the Church on the indissolubility of marriage. Talk about creating confusion regarding the teaching of the Church on the indissolubility of a marriage. This is it. But they're warning against doing that here. Now, what does that actually mean? Okay? It's clear. That's one sentence. It might be convenient to have eventual access to the sacraments privately, with the saying, in a reserved way, so as to avoid situations of conflict. In other words, where you might see people be scandalized by the fact that you're giving the sacraments to these people living in adultery. But notice, at the same time, the pastor is supposed to try to get the people in the community not to be scandalized. So that the community might be accepting of this. So that it might grow in a spirit of understanding and welcoming to the adulterers receiving the sacraments. But to do this in such a way that it doesn't create confusing regarding the Church's teaching on the indissolubility of marriage. Does it make sense? No. But to a modernist it does. Makes perfect sense. Why? Because a modernist doesn't have the Catholic faith. The modernist does not have the virtue of faith. 
The modernist may even believe, in his own way, doctrines of the faith, but he doesn't believe it because he has the virtue of faith. He believes it only because, to him, it, it resonates with something in his heart of hearts. It co- corresponds to some experience he's had of faith. But it has nothing to do with the virtue of faith, the God-given virtue of faith. No. So this all makes perfect sense to a modernist, even while he's contradicting himself. It's like saying, well, go ahead and, and, and kill an innocent person, but do it in such a way that you don't uh, indicate, uh, you don't confuse people about the church's uh, belief in the sanctity of human life. Go ahead and, and attack this marriage, destroy this marriage, or condone the destruction of this marriage and the, the violation of the marriage vows, but don't do it in such a way that you're going to confuse people about the church's teaching and the indissolubility of, the, of matrimony. Nonsense, right? The community, he finishes that paragraph, the community is an instrument of mercy that it's undeserved, unconditional, and free. Okay? So the community is supposed to be able to grant mercy. And mercy of its very nature, he says, is, quote, undeserved, unconditional, free. The words of Francis. And so what is there to hold back from absolute acceptance on the part of the community of people. And if someone is scandalized by the fact that people are living in adultery, are they not being unmerciful? Are they not being self-righteous? Are they not being judgmental? Are they not being uncharitable? Because, after all, mercy is undeserved, unconditional, and free. Allah, as per Francis there. So if somebody scandalized that a priest in their Novus Ordo is giving the Eucharist to people who are living in open adultery, and everyone, if someone is scandalized by that, does this not reflect badly on them? Doesn't reflect badly on the on the adulterers in any way. Doesn't reflect badly on the priest. It reflects badly on those who are judging them and not being merciful and granting undeserved unconditional and free mercy. They're the bad guys. There's something wrong with these people. They're the the bad Catholics. They're the ones who need to be reformed. And Francis is just the man to do it. Number 10. Discernment is never finished. Okay, so it goes on forever. Quote, because, quote, it is dynamic and must remain always open to new stages of growth and to new decisions that permit the realization of the ideal in a fuller way. Close quote. Words of Francis. In other words, we're not holding people to be faithful to their marriage vows. Holding people to be faithful to their marriage vows is an ideal. It's an ideal, purely an ideal. But you can't expect people to live up to the ideal. Give them the ideal to work for. That's the eventual outcome of this journey. So what you want to do is have you this, this open-ended discernment that goes on forever for them to approach the ideal of being faithful to their marriage vows and not commit adultery. But the discernment goes on forever because they never reach the ideal. 
If they reached the ideal, then the process of discernment would come to an end, a conclusion, a happy outcome. But the process of discernment is never finished because it is dynamic and must remain always open to new stages of growth. One never reaches that ideal of being faithful to win marriage vows and getting out of the adultery. How else to interpret this? To realize the ideal in a fuller way. In accordance with the, quote, law of gradualness, end quote, of Francis. And trusting in the help of grace. So we have the law of, of gradualness that is part, I guess, of our human, well, we can't say human nature because they don't like to talk about human nature that because that implies that there's something that God created that is common. They like to refer it to uh, human condition because human nature implies a human soul. Mm, uh, they don't necessarily want to talk about soul. So they like to talk about life and they like to talk about condition. So we share the common human condition. There's, there's the law of gradualness within our human condition. And then also grace, as he kind of chucks it in there at the end, to help you try to approach gradually more and more towards the ideal of being faithful to your marriage vows. What's left? And so the bishops of this region who've issued this statement, quoting extensively from Francis, expressing Francis's thought, uh, of which Francis says no other interpretation of Amorius Laetitia can be had. There is no other interpretation permissible for this Amorius Laetitia than allowing communion for divorced and remarried. That's what he says. That's what Francis says. No other possible allowed interpretation. So the bishops of this region of Buenos Aires, based upon this directive from Francis, end by saying, we are above all pastors. We therefore want to welcome these words of the Pope. Now they don't say we welcome these words. They say we want to welcome these words of the Pope. Curious. I invite pastors to listen with affection and serenity with a sincere desire to enter into the heart of the drama of people and to comprehend their point of view, to help them to live a better life and to recognize their place in the church. That is also a quote from Maurice Laetitia. And they close by saying, with affection in Christ, the bishops of the region, September 5th, 2016. Now, uh, just to wrap this up here, um, it is very difficult for a traditional Catholic priest to read these things without becoming somehow passionately, passionately involved, to be involved with these things on every level of humanity, <laughs> because uh, this is such an egregious attack on what is sacred, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in giving us the sacrament of matrimony, the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, his own presence in the Blessed Sacrament, 
this is such a, an egregious, as I say, a, a bold and and uh, blunt, straightforward attack, direct attack on these sacred things. And ultimately, it is an attack on our Lord himself. When a traditional Catholic priest is confronted with modernism, he actually hates modernism, as we are required to hate sin, with a true contrition, which is defined as a hatred of sin, an absolute rejection of sin. And a Catholic hates modernism because it is the antithesis of, uh, of Catholicism. And it is a direct attack on Almighty God, His truth, on who He is and what He has done in the Incarnation and the Redemption. And so one could sit here and drone on, and I've, I've droned on, I guess. One could drone on impassively and just turn the page and say, well, this is not good, and that is not good. And there are many who seem to do that. But for a traditional Catholic priest who has a love for our Lord and sees him being insulted here, sees him being offended, sees him being uh, scourged and spat upon and crowned with thorns, by these modernists of the day, these, these, these enemies of Christ of our own day, it is impossible not to react with a certain vehemence. Um, one cannot be dispassionate about this. My dear, my dear faithful here, we've, we have in these directives from Francis and his, and his Novus Ordo bishops, the bishops of the Novus Ordo, directed by the Pope of the New Order, we have a, a direct frontal attack on the Catholic faith, a frontal attack on our Lord himself. Uh, we don't react uh, with passion because we ourselves are offended, because we ourselves are hurt, because we ourselves are targeted by these things. We react the way we do because the one we love, our Lord Jesus Christ, is being attacked. We have to realize that. This, this is an attack on our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is an attack on his own sacred heart. This is an attack on, on what he became man to do. The Son of God became man to do. And what he, in fact, did in his church, and what he wants to accomplish in every soul, the sanctification of the soul. And the salvation of the soul in heaven. That's what, is, that's what is at stake here. We cannot just simply approach this in a purely academic way and look upon it as though it were all hypothetical. It's very practical. There are souls being attacked by this. The faith is being, is being destroyed in the souls of people like this. Uh, their morality, the, 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 the life of grace in the soul is being, is being destroyed by this, these people in this way. We have to do everything in our power to oppose them. And the only way we can have to oppose them is by upholding the true traditional Catholic faith and the practice of the true traditional Catholic religion. It's, it's the only way we can. Uh, we do not need their permission to do that. We do not need their permission to oppose them in their devilish scheme. Um, and that is exactly the power that is behind this. It is diabolical. So I ask you, uh, renew your, your fidelity 
to your marriage vows. Renew your intention of being faithful to your marriage vows. Uh, in thought, word, and deed. Don't let any thought even betray your faithfulness to your marriage vows. And uh, insist that you are going to be faithful to our Lord in practicing the traditional Catholic faith in the true religion, the true Catholic religion here. Um, expose the modernists at every turn. Uh, do not allow them to disguise themselves and do not allow others to disguise them by trying to explain away the real meaning of their words and trying to minimize how it's not really that important. Be very determined to say, to call it what it is. It is apostasy. It is what St. Pius X condemned in his encyclical on the condemning the errors of the modernists of September 8th, 1907, Vicente Domenici Regis, when he said that modernism is the greatest enemy of the faith, modernists are the greatest enemies the church has ever faced, the most dangerous enemies. And their modernism is nothing less than the bringing together, the complexes, the synthesis of all heresies, ultimately the denial of all faith. God bless you.